morning to you. We continue our uh, mini-series in the book of Hebrews, specifically in chapter 12 this week. Uh, before we uh, turn there, let me pray. Father, we uh, have sung your praises. Uh, we have declared your goodness. We have heard, Lord, of the power of God that the gospel is for salvation uh, around the world. And, and we are reminded that you are a living God. You've sent a living Redeemer in your Son, Christ Jesus, to die for our sin. And that you have given us a living word, your revelation of yourself. We ask now as we turn there that you would give us eyes to see, that you would uh, steady our hearts, strengthen our uh, resolve in you, Christ. We pray it in your name. Amen. Well, last week we looked to Hebrews 12 and, and this great exhortation to run the race of faith with endurance looking to Jesus Christ as the object and author and perfecter of our faith. This week we continue on the theme of perseverance in faith, and we look to one of the primary means that God uses to bring it about. So let us uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 12, starting in uh, verse 3. I'll read uh, through verse 11. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is God's Word. Hebrews describes these followers of Christ as those who are wearied and worn out. They are fatigued, hands drooping, he goes on to tell us, and, and, and weak-kneed in their faith, exhausted by their struggle with sin. And at this point in the race, ready ready to drop out, ready to exit the course and go in a different direction. Last week, I introduced you to the ultramarathoner Scott Jurek. I want you to meet him again 
this week, but in a very different race and in an unusual turn of events. The race is called the Badwater Ultramarathon, and it's known for being the most extreme race offered anywhere on the planet. It begins in Death Valley, California, in the heat of the July summer. In fact, it'll take place next week. Temperatures soaring well into 120 plus degrees. It covers 135 miles across the desert and then over three mountain ranges, finishing its course at Mount Whitney in California at an elevation of 8,300 feet. In 2005, Scott Jurek ran this race and he began strong. He went out many miles over extreme heat and he became fatigued, wearied, and he eventually collapsed on the side of the road. This is how Chris McDougall describes it in his book, Born to Run. By mile 60, Scott was sick and shaky. His hands dropped to his knees, then his knees dropped to the pavement. He collapsed to the side of the road, lying in his own sweat and spittle. See, Scott Jurek fell victim to the elements that day. He was utterly exhausted by the struggle that the race had presented to him. So he lay by the side of the road, worn out, weak, wearied, fading into oblivion, the victim of utter fatigue. Well, long before this runner was felled by physical exhaustion, Mental exhaustion, weariness, debility took its toll. That's how it always is. When, when, when the struggles come at you, you begin to question what you're doing and who you are and why you're doing it. That's, that's how it is in the midst of physical exertion. It's, it's even more the case with the race of faith. When faced with the struggles of sin and trials of a broken and fallen world, you begin to wonder, really, what is this faith thing all about? What, what difference does it, does it really make? Who, who am I? Why am I doing this? And all of a sudden, doubts begin to rise. And if they're not answered, you find yourself on the side of the road collapsed out of the race. That's the very scenario that our author is concerned with in Hebrews chapter 12. Not in regards to the physical race, but in regards to the race of faith, the spiritual ultramarathon, the only race of ultimate significance. These Hebrew Christians were enduring hardship and suffering, and they were worn out by it, and they started to look back to their former way of life before Christ, and it started to look appealing. They're not unlike the wilderness generation many, many years before them who grumbled and complained even though God had redeemed them and freed them from bondage and slavery. And He provided for their every need as He freed them and directed them. 
They looked back to Egypt and their former way of life with select memories and they longed for a return to that land and they were ready to abandon their God to get there. These Christians, the author is concerned, would not repeat that same journey, that same faith. And the reality is, whether it be for the wilderness generation of long ago or for the church in New Testament times, or even for us today, every Christian at some point along the journey of faith, there comes a time where we are faint-hearted, discouraged. We lose heart. We're tempted to give up and abandon the race. You begin to look at the trials that you're facing and and you wonder, what, what is going on? God, where are you? Don't you care, Lord? Why do you let this happen to me? Are you even there? Don't you love me, God? Do you even know I exist? Am I yours, Lord? Really, do I belong to you? It doesn't seem like it. Why would you let this happen? Why all the difficulty? What good does it serve? You see, I I don't know where you are in your walk of faith. I don't know what struggles are before you even this day. I don't know what trials you are facing or tribulation or adversity or hardship. I don't know what you have faced and I don't know what you will face. But I know one thing for sure, you will face them if you call upon Christ. That is what, what the Scriptures assure us of. And so this passage has everything to say to us even today when disappointment and pain and loss or ill health comes or injustice or abuse or brokenness or relational discord or whatever other calamities might come our way. We are quick to lose sight of God's redemptive purposes for suffering and for hardship. And maybe even tempted to abandon the walk of faith. But if we understand this passage and how God uses these very things, then it will not turn us away from him, but to him. That we would pursue Christ even more. This is what Paul has in mind when he says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. That suffering ultimately leads to hope. It leads to to wholehearted trust and faith in Christ. James would affirm what Paul says, and so would Peter. They would see that suffering and difficulties have ultimate redemptive value. They accomplish the good that God is concerned with for us. C.S. Lewis understood this when he wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts in our pain. And similarly, Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a dulled world. So to doubt God, to forget who he is and what he's doing in the midst of trials, as these Hebrew Christians were doing, is wholly incoherent with a biblical understanding of what God desires to do through hardship and trials. 
See, the truth is that, that these Christians are not alone. We can respond the same way, can't we? And so we're given this passage to show the danger of doubting God when trials come and the delight that follows when we rightly understand God's disciplining love. It shows us the danger of doubting God and the delight of God's disciplining love. Now, if you're like me, maybe you're not like me. When I was a kid, I, I received a fair amount of discipline. Usually uh, um, with a uh, leather strap involved, if I recall. And um, I quite frankly have a very little cognizance of how that could be delightful. Um, and so maybe you think, as I propose this day, that, that God's discipline somehow could be delightful. Maybe you respond to it in, with a visceral, visceral reaction like I do, that that really doesn't seem uh, possible. But I want to suggest to you that this text will prove to us that it is. So as we think about trials and tribulation and when it comes and our tendency to forget God or to doubt God, I want you to see three things specifically. We doubt what God is doing, we doubt who we are, and we doubt why God is doing it. That's, that's the, the direction of our passage. And I want to say this about, about just the idea of forgetting the exhortation that God has given us, forgetting Um, who God is, doubting who God is. The idea for forgetting in this passage literally means to to let escape. And uh, it means to escape the mind. And, and, And when things escape our attention, it's because something else is usually taking our attention from it. In our house, it seems, especially with a three year old now with us, there's a lot of forgetting. And, uh, and it's largely because something else has captured our attention for that moment. And so what was on our mind is, has escaped, if you will, and we are now drawn to something else. Well, so it is in forgetting who we are and who God is that, that doubts can quickly capture our attention and we question who God is. And so the idea of of, of not remembering, forgetting, not having certainty is connected uh, with the idea of doubting. So when we look to this passage, we begin to see there's, there's a warning here for us as believers that if we fail to rightly see God, who He is and what He's doing in the midst of our affliction, then the potential for bitterness, acrimony, even enmity toward God increases significantly. You see, if we fail to get this message right, then it actually works against God's very purposes for us. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan, understood the role of suffering and how it it prepares us, how it works in our own hearts when he says that suffering so unbolts the door of the heart that the Word has easier entrance. See, suffering has that ability. And so I want to encourage you, even this day, to allow it to unbolt the door of your heart, to soften your heart, that you might see God 
and His sovereign purposes anew. I want to also warn against the tendency when things are going well in life to skirt over these passages. It's, it's quite easy to do to pass over them and, and miss really their value. When things are going well, we don't have an ear to the passages that speak to hardship or affliction because that's not our experience. And so often we, we go from what our immediate experience is. Alexander McLaren understood this when he says, these verses are like a lighthouse in calm sunshine. But sooner or later, the stormy night falls and then the bright beam flashes out and is welcome. For some of you, that stormy night is right now. And you need to be reminded of what the Lord is doing and why. But for others, you're basking in the warm, calm, pleasant sunshine of the day. But we both know that that storm will come. It is part of living in a fallen world. So let's look to the passage before us, starting in verses 3 and 4. We're given the context for, for the passage as it unfolds. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You see, the danger for every believer is that of weariness in the race, of fatigue and exhaustion. And it comes, this author tells us, with our struggle against sin. And the point that he is making is that Jesus Christ conquered most when he suffered most. Do you see that? That Christ conquered most when he was on the cross, when he endured his greatest suffering, is when he worked redemptive good for his people. And, And that is offered to serve as an encouragement even amidst the trials that we face. And it's that reality that sets the trajectory for our passage before us this morning. But we must allow Christ and the cross to shape our understanding as we think about suffering and hardship. For a right view of Christ and the cross and what He has done is what enables us to combat sin and remain steadfast in the faith. But a misunderstanding of how God uses suffering, trials, to discipline His children poses a danger for the believer, and it causes us to doubt in what He's doing. Let me help you to see that in this passage. Verses 5 and 6 show us that when suffering comes... We forget, we doubt God's affection. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Difficulties come upon me. My temptation is always to ask, 
Why me, Lord? Why, why would you do this? How could you let this happen? Have you forgotten me? Do you not love me? That's part of our, our sinful nature. That, that is where our mind immediately goes, often in the midst of trials. But for the pastor who wrote this word of exhortation, he sees it as really just the opposite. It's not cause for questioning God's love. It's actually cause for being affirmed and reminded of God's love. Do you see that? It it, it is an expression of God's great affection for you. That he disciplines the one he loves. Now I know this goes against the natural grain of our thinking when trials come. But it's precisely where the scriptures take us. It's, It's part of what Richard Sibbs called God's contrary ways. He says, when God means to give victory, he will allow us to be foiled at first. When he means to comfort, he will terrify first. When he means to make glorious, he will abase us first. You see, discipline works that way. It's one of God's contrary ways. He uses what is hard to bring what is good. John Newton, the former slave trader, Uh, The influencer of great men, the author of Amazing Grace, said this, Everything is necessary that God sends. Everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. You see, God allows adversity so that he can accomplish his purposes for us. That's what we pick up in verses 5 and 6. In our trials and affliction, God is able to hold our attention. And He's able to humble us where needed so that He might make us glorious ultimately for His glory. He's able to crystallize our allegiance to Him and our loyalties to Him and to Him alone. And he's able to put our dependence upon him above all other things. That's how suffering works. And he does it because of his great love. Friend, you know this. It's the same with any loving parent. You discipline your child because of your great love for him or her. Not to discipline them in the midst of wrongdoing or even in the midst of misunderstanding would be to hate them. Actually, it's worse. It is indifference toward your child. That's the opposite of love. Is you actually don't care enough about their well-being to correct your three-year-old when he goes to turn on the gas on the stove. But you just let them do it and suffer the consequences. That kind of indifference would be hatred toward someone you love. It is not fathomable for a loving God. It doesn't exist. I want you to see in this, 
in this verse, there are two ways to respond to God's discipline that are deficient. The first is to regard it lightly. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. This is called stoicism. It's it's that response where we disregard or really despise God's discipline. And and it's just that, um, you know, keep a stiff upper lip or whatever, whatever. Ah, that didn't go so well or this this thing is going on in my life, Ah, whatever. This too shall pass. It'll be over soon. That's a regarding lightly God's discipline. It's a deficient response. The second response is is to be weary when reproved by him. And I want to suggest that this is a response of self-pity or sulking or pouting when trials come. You know what it looks like with a little child, don't you? I can think of it. Even even, uh, recently, a little boy who's told not to do something and, honey, don't leave the door open. You'll let all the bugs in the house. Honey, I told you once, now don't leave the door open. You're going to let, let the dog out if you do that. And, and, and by the third time, you correct the child and, and the child just throws a fit, sulks, pouts, just sits down on the floor, legs become spaghetti, and, and, and you're wondering, what happened? I just, I told him to close the door. This seems like an undue response to that discipline. And, and you begin to realize that, that it, is, it is an oversensitivity that is self-focused. And, and it often can come because of pride or some other deficiency of heart. And so we over-respond. It's the child who's undone by correction. And this, this, this view looks at trials and difficulty as injury to self rather than as correcting reproof. For our little son to understand the discipline he received in the midst of his disobedience would be to understand our love for him, that we correct him and teach him, and we reprove him so that he might grow to be a wise and godly young man. So we're neither to regard lightly God's discipline, nor are we to be wearied by it, but, but we are to understand that in it we have an, a genuine expression of God's love and concern for us. So when trials come, we're prone to doubt God's love. Instead, when God disciplines us, we should delight in the Father's love. Delight in the Father's love for even amidst adversity that He brings into our lives. That it's an expression of His love. And if we do that, then we begin to see how discipline brings delight. It's not doubting God. It's delighting in His love that He would love me so much so that He would allow this trial to shape me and change me that I would grow wholly dependent upon Christ for all my days. Secondly, I want you to see when suffering comes, we doubt our identity 
as sons, as children of the living God. Verses 7 to 9. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? This begins to show us that, that that discipline, the trials that come, are actually a part of our identity. It's part of what it means to be a son of the living God. It's a direct quotation from Proverbs 3 that says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And, and both of these passages may have in mind Deuteronomy 8, where the lessons that were learned from the wilderness journeys are being reiterated by God. And in verse 5, God says this, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Why does he discipline you? Because you belong to him. Because you're a son or a daughter of God. Friends, it's an injustice to the gospel when we doubt our sonship when trials come our way. For a father who loves his son will discipline his son for their good. It's an expression of their love for that child. See, the problem is we really don't want God to be that kind of father, do we? When, when trials come, we, we don't embrace them because we don't want God to discipline us. C.S. Lewis pointed out that we want not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven whose plan for the universe was such that it might be said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. See, we don't embrace suffering. We don't embrace trials because we don't share God's agenda for us. Instead, when we're disciplined, we doubt our very relationship to God. We ask, where are you, God? And we wonder how could, how could he allow such a thing to happen to one of his children. And so we conclude that we don't belong to him. See, discipline from a loving father is evidence that we are his children. I, I want you to just think, if, if I'm... If I'm at the poolside with my son and my son mistreats another child and, and, and I don't do anything, then, then I, I miss that opportunity to shape him for life. And so I reprove him, I discipline, I correct him, I teach him how to treat others so, so that he would learn to love and value others. But if I see another child behaving in the same way, I'm not going to respond by disciplining that child. And the reason I don't respond is because it's not my son. I, I discipline my son because I love my son. But that's not how I respond to someone who is not my son. That's the point the author is making. 
See, Miguel's relationship to me as son to father warrants the discipline because of my love for him, because he is truly my son. And so it is for all who've been adopted into God's family through Christ and thus have God as their father. When we face trials, then we recall our identity as children of the living God. And we're reminded that God is training up his children to be heirs of the heavenly king. That's his purpose. That's what he's doing. It's the value of discipline, and it affirms our very relationship to God. J.I. Packer helps us see this with, with great clarity when he writes, In this world, royal children have to undergo extra training and discipline which other children escape in order to fit them for their high destiny. He's referring to the monarchy in England. It is the same with the children of the King of Kings. The clue to understanding all his dealings with them is to remember that throughout their lives he is training them for what awaits them and chiseling them into the image of Christ. Sometimes the chiseling process is painful and the discipline is irksome. But then the scriptures remind us the Lord disciplines those he loves. Friends, when suffering comes, we're prone to doubt our relationship with God as sons and daughters of the living God. Instead, instead, when God disciplines us, we should delight in our identity as children of the King who are being trained for life in the kingdom. That brings us to our third point of how discipline brings delight. It is this. When suffering comes, we doubt God's redemptive purposes. Verses 10 and 11. For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What I mean when I say that when adversity comes, we fail to see uh, God's redemptive purposes, that is, we fail to see the benefits that discipline brings upon us. We don't embrace discipline that way. We don't think of it that way. That there are many benefits that God bestows upon us. Refinement, restoration, sanctification, humility, and he uses trials and discipline to accomplish those in our lives. But I want to point to one specifically. It is, it is a spiritual benefit that has both temporal and eternal implications. It is so that we might share in the holiness of God and yield the fruit of righteousness and peace to those who have been trained by it. The key word I want you to hear is those who have been trained. The benefit of discipline in the here and now is that we are being trained by it. We are being instructed by God. The word for discipline is in the same family as disciple and discipleship. It carries the idea of of instructing, of educating one's followers. Thomas Brooks once said, God's corrections are are instructions. 
God's corrections are instructions. His lashes are lessons. The word for train here is the word we get gymnasium from. You know that. In the gymnasium, we discipline our bodies so that they function well and endure the long haul. We don't call it the gymnasium anymore. It's the health club today or maybe just the club. Um, But it is the place where we go to discipline our bodies, if you will. If, If I take the time and and begin a regimen of working out. If I say I'm just going to every day begin to do push-ups, and now I haven't done push-ups in a while, um, the first time I try to do them, I might get through two or three if I'm, if I'm lucky. And by the time I get to maybe four, I'm exhausted by them. I'm worn out. My weakness is evident and apparent. So the next day I try to do five, and, and I and I continue in that growth. And, and in my weariness, in my weakness, I'm actually becoming stronger. And maybe one day look like John Nielsen. <laughs> That's the reality of, of physical exertion. And so it is with spiritual health that discipline has every potential to bring growth and strength. And that's God's design. You and I both know that your faith will not grow if it's not tested. I speak with many people in the course of a week who are in the midst of those testings in so many different scenarios. And I'm quick to remind them that it is part of God's goodness to them. That in those testings, your, your commitments, your loyalties to Christ are firmed up. And your faith grows, and it grows stronger, and it enables you for what is ahead. Friends, your patience will not grow if it's not tested. Now, I know there are many young parents here who don't like to hear that. I don't like to hear that. But it's true. Your commitment will not grow if it's not taxed. If it's, if it's not disciplined. I've heard Tim Keller say it this way, God brings suffering to move you from blindness to self-knowledge, from pride to humility, from foolishness to wisdom. He brings external hardships to deal with internal brokenness and internal sin. See, that's the kind of training that comes from discipline. It's the benefit of discipline. Now, the word for discipline here is paideia. It's the same word we get pediatrics from. Now, I'm married to a pediatrics intensive care nurse. Makes for interesting dinner conversation. But one thing I know about pediatric nurses and doctors is that they are concerned for the well-being of that child. That that child would grow to flourish and thrive in life. In fact, out of their concern for that child, they might even bring pain into that child's life so that that child would eventually flourish and do well. That's the picture here. It shows us the benefits of discipline for our good and how God intends it to lead to the fruit of righteousness 
and peace in our lives. Paul says it this way, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings that they might produce hope. That our sufferings have that good purpose. There are benefits to the trials that God allows into our lives. And when we see that and we understand that, then we don't doubt God's goodness. We don't doubt His purposes and what He's doing. Rather, we delight in what He is doing. That that He loves us and is so concerned for our well-being that He brings even pain into our lives so that He might shape us and use us for His glory and even for our good. When we get that, we then see how discipline brings delight. When suffering comes and we are tended, prone, tempted to doubt God's redemptive purpose, forgetting its benefits, let us instead delight in discipline because it's how God instructs us for life and godliness both now and forevermore. Let us pray. Father, when uh, we are faced with the trials and tribulations of this life, I ask you help us, Lord, to delight in your love. Help us to recall our identity as children of the living God and to see how you intend to use even the hardships of this life to shape us and to train us for righteousness. And may we always remember that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.